Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Box and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canada, A Yearly Journey. Today, we're looking at the year 1903. On February 25th, Francis Michael Clancy was born in Ottawa. At the time, his father played football for Ottawa and was called King Clancy because he was known as the King of the Healers on the team. The nickname would eventually transfer down to Frank, becoming his pseudo-name for the rest of his life as he was known as King Clancy. Growing up in Ottawa, Clancy would have seen the legendary Ottawa Senators team dominating hockey in Canada. Clancy first gained notice in Ottawa while playing for the St. Joseph's High School and then the City Munitions Junior Squad. Clancy would debut with the Senators on December 17, 1921 at the age of 17, weighing only 150 pounds. He would score in his first game as well, an overtime win against Hamilton. That first year, he would record 10 points in 24 games, followed by 5 points in 24 games the following season. In that second season, he helped the Senators win the Stanley Cup. Known for his small size, Clancy was also tough and fast and would not back down from any fight. The Senators would win the Stanley Cup again in 1927 and Clancy's point totals continued to increase. In 1929-30, he recorded 40 points in 44 games for the Senators, but that would prove to be his last season with his hometown team. Over the course of his career with the Senators, he hit double digits for goals three times and was known for using every trick he could to defend his own zone. The Senators were in dire financial straits and had begun selling off their prized players. No player on the team was as prized as that of King Clancy. Toronto manager Con Smythe was a great admirer of Clancy and would pay $35,000 or $541,000 today, along with two players to bring Clancy to the Maple Leafs. For Smythe, Clancy would not only turn his team into a powerhouse, it would also help him get a hockey shrine built, Maple Leaf Gardens. He would say, Clancy made it possible. We were building a great team with many fine players, but Clancy made it all stick together. In his first season with the Leafs, he recorded 21 points in 44 games. In his second season, which saw him with 19 points in 48 games, he led the Maple Leafs to the Stanley Cup, the third of his career. He would stay with the Maple Leafs for the remainder of his career until 1936-37. Eventually, Clancy realized he could no longer continue as he was unable to keep weight on his already small frame. Nothing was wrong with his health, but he knew his time was done. He would say, I was 33 and the highest paid player in the NHL when I announced I was hanging up my skates. I never forgot the date. It was November 24, 1936. I was through as a player, but not finished as far as the Maple Leaf organization was concerned. Mr. Smythe gave me a job as a goodwill ambassador, and that kept me in touch with the game I loved. Upon his retirement, his 283 points as a defenseman were the most in NHL history. During his NHL career, he was named to the NHL first All-Star team in 1931 and 1934, and the second All-Star team in 1932 and 1933. 
Following his retirement, Clancy would briefly coach the Montreal Maroons. During his season, 1937-38, coaching the Maroons, they finished fourth and Clancy was fired. He then began working as a referee in the NHL, a career that would last 11 years. In 1958, Clancy would be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. He would remain with the Toronto Maple Leafs as the assistant general manager into the 1960s as the team settled into a new dynasty in which it won four Stanley Cups under Punch Imlach. When Imlach was fired in 1969, Clancy assumed he would be fired as well, but he was made vice president of the team instead. You know, you knew, you knew a lot of, you knew a lot of the good ones, you know, with, uh, with Nell Stewart. Yeah. Nell Stewart, you know, when they used to get him in front of the net with the, and hold him, hold him, you know. I, only that this thing is here, I could tell you. <laughs> Eddie Longfellow did. Yeah. The guy can't go, and he the time to electric company. He deserved it, too, Johnny. Any guy like that, on his way up to business. It would take all the time with a bunch of guys like Nelson and and Hooley at the beach. You know, we're great players. I come out of the closet. I tell a guy, folks. He needs to be like a just conscious. I broke both of these. He's been a good hockey player. On account of the team, they run fast. But he comes down. Harold Ballard took over control of the Maple Leafs in 1971-72 and quickly became good friends with Clancy. In 1971-72, Clancy stepped behind the bench for 15 games to coach the Maple Leafs, while head coach John McClellan recovered from a peptic ulcer. Clancy would remain with the Leafs' front office for the rest of his life. In 1986, Clancy had an operation to remove his gallbladder, but an infection from the gallbladder seeping into his body during the operation resulted in him going into septic shock. He would die on November 8, 1986. On April 19th, Oliver Mowat died. He first entered politics in 1857 as an alderman with the City of Toronto and then served in the Legislative Assembly of the Province of Canada from 1858 to 1867. Considered a father of confederation, he remained with the Assembly until 1872 when he became the Premier of Ontario. He would serve as Premier until 1896, longer than anyone else in the history of the province. As Premier, he fought for more provincial rights, introduced the secret ballot, extended the vote to beyond property owners, regulated liquor, and also fixed the boundary between Ontario and Manitoba. From 1896 to 1897, he served in the Canadian Senate, and from 1896 to 1897, he also served in Parliament with the cabinet of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. In 1897, he became the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, serving until his death. On April 29th, Turtle Mountain collapsed onto the community of Frank. Throughout April 1903, the miners had heard rumblings from the mountain, and the pressure of the shifting rock even began to crack and splinter of the supporting timbers of the mine shaft. Still, the mining continued. On April 28, 1903, a sudden wave of cold air caused the water in the mountain to freeze. This trapped air and liquid within the mountain. With the extra pressure of the expanding ice in the fissures, Turtle Mountain had reached its breaking point. At 4.10 a.m. on April 29, 1903, 30 million cubic meters of limestone rock weighing 82 million tons broke off of Turtle Mountain. The section of mountain that barreled down to Frank was 1 kilometer wide, 425 meters high, and 150 meters deep. Moving at 112 kilometers an hour down the mountain, it took 100 seconds for the slide to slam into Frank. The crash was so loud it was said it could be heard 200 kilometers away in the town of Cochrane. Many people who survived and were close to the disaster said it sounded like cannons going off next to their heads. 
The reason for the slide moving so fast was that an air cushion developed between the rock slide debris and the mountain from the compressed air. There's also the theory of acoustic fluidization, which theorizes that a huge mass of moving material creates enough seismic energy that it reduces the friction between two materials, allowing it to move faster and farther. As the landslide fell down the mountain, it destroyed the entrance of the coal mine, two kilometers of railway, two ranches, and a section of Frank. Thankfully, it only hit the eastern edge of town, which was more sparsely populated than the other areas of Frank. In all, it killed at least 90 to 100 people. On April 30th, Emily Stowe died. Born on May 1st, 1831 in Oxford County, she was refused entrance to Victoria College because she was a woman, and then the Toronto School of Medicine. She was told, The doors of the university are not open to women, and I trust they never will be. She went to university and earned a medical degree at the New York Medical College for Women in 1867. She came back to Canada and opened a medical clinic providing care to women and children and she's considered to be the first female physician to practice in Canada. In 1880, she was finally granted a license to practice medicine based on her three decades of experience, becoming the second woman in Canada to have a medical license. In her later life, she became a leading figure in the women's suffrage movement, and in 1893, retired from medicine. Her daughter, Augusta Stowe Gullen, became the first woman to earn a medical degree in Canada. On May 23rd, Elsie Gibbons was born in Ottawa. In 1920, she married Gordon Gibbons and the two operated a small grocery store together which did well through the 1930s and 1940s. Due to her large community role in Portage du Fort, she was asked to become mayor by the citizens of the community. She was elected by acclamation on May 13, 1953, becoming the first woman to be a mayor of a community in Quebec. Under her role as mayor, she persuaded voters to vote for a water distribution system and secured $15,000 for its construction. She also had every road in the village paved, renovated buildings and sidewalks, and developed leisure and sports facilities while also employing a fire chief, voluntary fire brigade, and law enforcement in the community on weekends. In 1971, her time as mayor came to an end, but in 1973 she was elected councillor and again as mayor from 1975 to 1977. She passed away on January 28, 2003. On June 23rd, Paul Martin Sr. was born in Ottawa. In 1907, Martin contracted polio, something that would shape him for the rest of his life. For a time, he was unable to walk and his siblings took him to school in a child's wagon. He was left with a weakened left arm and it showed him the importance of developing a vaccine to deal with the terrible disease. To counter the weakness in his arm and leg muscles, he swam daily throughout his career all the way up to his 80s. As a child, he saw his father work at a grocery store and for a time be unemployed. This pushed him to later advocate heavily for government and employment insurance. Originally planning to go into the priesthood, Martin became fascinated with Sir Wilfrid Laurier and chose instead to pursue politics. When Laurier died in 1919, Martin skipped classes and walked 15 kilometers to pay homage to the man lying in state. In 1928, he attempted to win a provincial seat in the Ontario legislature but failed. Upon his graduation as a lawyer, he worked briefly in Toronto but moved permanently to Windsor in 1930. In 1935, Martin was elected to the House of Commons where he would remain for over three decades. The Liberals had just swept back into power, having defeated the Conservatives by winning 173 seats, the most in Canadian history to that point. Almost immediately, Martin began to rise up the Liberal ranks thanks to his experience with international relations and law. During the Second World War, despite the fact he was in Parliament, he tried to enlist three times for active service, but did not qualify physically. He then enlisted as a private and served with pride. 
Prime Minister William Lyme Mackenzie King made him the parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Labour in 1943. In 1945, Martin was appointed as the Secretary of State. One year later, in 1946, he was the Minister of National Health and Welfare. In early 1946, Martin introduced the Canadian Citizenship Act. Prior to this point, a Canadian citizen was designated as a British subject who was born, naturalized, and domiciled in Canada. In 1921, the status of Canadian national was introduced. On April 2, 1946, the Act was given first reading in the House of Commons and received its royal assent on June 27, 1946. It was implemented on January 1, 1947, with Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King becoming the first Canadian citizen. In 1948, he launched a $30 million annual health grant system, followed by an expansion of the Family Allowances Act and Old Age Pensions Act. Martin was instrumental in ensuring the polio vaccine was available to Canadians, even as some worried about its safety. On April 25, 1955, reports began to appear that some batches of the vaccine produced by Cutter Laboratories in California had not been fully activated. A total of 79 cases of polio were tied to the vaccine, and the U.S. Surgeon General recalled all of the Cutter vaccine, and a new polio surveillance system was set up. In total, 200 children were left paralyzed and 10 would die. On May 7th, the United States suspended its vaccine program. There was a great deal of debate about what to do. Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent was hesitant to allow vaccines to continue, but his health minister, Paul Martin Sr., decided to continue the program in Canada. In 1955, Martin negotiated an agreement that allowed for the expansion of the members of the United Nations, allowing it to become the organization it is today. His work allowed 16 new members to join the General Assembly. Percy Saltzman now talks with Canada's voice at the United Nations, the Honorable Paul Martin. Mr. Martin, do you really think then that we have broken the deadlock in the Cold War? Well, I wouldn't say that we have broken the deadlock in the Cold War. But what we have been able to do is, for the first time since the end of the Second World War, we have been able to obtain the consent of the Soviet Union uh, to a resolution as a result of which it will now be possible uh, to begin very important discussions having to do with disarmament. That represents an achievement of very great significance. It is the first time since... 1946, that the Soviet Union has agreed to support a measure put forward uh, by the West, and it is the first time in the history of the United Nations that every member of that body in the political committee has supported by their vote this important resolution, which is essentially a resolution on procedure. In 1956, he steered through the House of Commons the legislation that would allow for a national hospital insurance system in Canada. And finally, with Lester B. Pearson retiring in 1968, Martin once again tried to become leader of the party. Unfortunately, this time he was up against the up-and-coming Pierre Trudeau, who was the choice of Lester B. Pearson to run. Trudeau didn't confirm if he was running or not, and Martin attempted to find out whether or not that was the case. In the eventual election race, Trudeau would be his main challenger despite an age difference. On January 23, 1968, he sent his son to spread the message that he wanted to be identified with the leading wing of the party, not the old guard. Despite his best efforts, the leading wing of the party put their support behind Trudeau. On April 6, 1968, the leadership convention was held. On the first ballot, Martin finished a distant fourth with 11.6% of the vote, tying with the young and dynamic John Turner, while Trudeau had 31.5% of the vote. 
with the eventual loss, he knew his chance of becoming Prime Minister was over. According to his son, Paul Martin Jr., his father was filled with anguish. Over the course of his parliamentary career, Martin never lost an election in his riding, ten straight wins in all. Often he took 50-60% to 60 of the vote in those elections. One reason for his success was he was a pioneer when it came to using poll-by-poll -poll surveys, check-back visits, direct mail methods, and vote projections. It was said his workers could predict almost exactly to the vote how the election would turn out in the riding days before the election happened. In late August 1992, Martin broke his hip, spending three weeks in the hospital, and while it seemed as though his condition was improving, it suddenly took a turn for the worse. On September 14, 1992 in Windsor, Martin passed away. The Ottawa citizens said of him, He was an institution, familiar, enduring, as Canadian as hockey or maple syrup, he seemed to have been with us forever and would remain for a long time to come. On July 30th, Harold Ballard was born in Toronto. Beginning his career as a businessman, he had a strong history in hockey, and he sponsored the Toronto National Sea Fleas that won the Allen Cup in 1932. In 1940, he joined the Toronto Maple Leafs organization, and in 1957, he became a senior executive. In 1961, he became part owner of the team, and for the next decade, he saw the team win the Stanley Cup in 1962, 1963, 1964, and 1967. In 1972, he became the majority owner of the team, which he would own until his death. Among Maple Leaf fans, the period of time is not looked upon fondly as he consistently dismantled promising teams and never built a true contender for the city. In 1978, he bought the Hamilton Tiger Cats, who won the Grey Cup in 1986 under his ownership. He sold the Tiger Cats in 1988. In 1977, Ballard was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, and in 1987 was inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. He is still king of the court in Toronto. At 85, Harold Ballard lives. The entire room stood when he entered for today's Leafs luncheon. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for standing up for old gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, sir, you can sit down. Now you can sit down. He was on hand today to help drafted winger Scott Pearson sign his first contract. And to welcome back Boria Salming to $350,000 and a 16th year. Many thought Salming wouldn't be back either. Salming wanted more money. Wendell Clark's back still hurts. Despite missing most of last season, Clark wants a new deal. The Chief is back. George Armstrong will scout. I came to Toronto and played junior, senior uh, for the Leafs. I was associated with the Leafs for 32 years after that. And so I can't really say that there's not a, a little Maple Leaf tattooed on me someplace. He died on April 11, 1990 at the age of 86. He is one of only seven people to have won both the Stanley Cup and the Grey Cup. On August 31st, Helen Battle was born in London, Ontario. When she was only 16, she started to pursue her undergraduate degree and earned her PhD in 1928, becoming the first woman in Canada to earn a PhD in marine biology. From 1929 to 1967, she served in the faculty of Western University, where she taught over 4,500 students on the subject of zoology and marine biology. Throughout her time with the university, she fought to improve the position of women in universities and encourage women to go to graduate school. In 1961, she co-founded the Canadian Society of Zoologists and in 1967 retired from her position. In 1971, she was awarded an honorary Doctor of Laws from Western University and a Doctor of Science from Carleton University. She passed away on June 17, 1994 at the age of 90. Also this year, the Lachine Rapids Hydraulic and Land Company was established, which generated 12,000 electric horsepower for use in Montreal thanks to the Lachine Canal. Also in 1903, the Alaska boundary discussions with the United States would begin. 
Canada wanted an all-Canadian route from the Klondike Goldfields to the Pacific, currently blocked by U.S. territory on the Alaska Panhandle that the United States claimed as its own. A six-person tribunal was created with Canada getting two votes, the United States getting three, and Britain getting one. In the end, Britain ruled in favour of the United States, hoping to avert military conflict. The incident greatly irritated Wilfrid Laurier, who saw Canada as lacking the power to make its own international decisions. The Canadian government purchased the Plains of Abraham this year, which is where a decisive battle was fought between the British and French on September 13, 1759. The battle led to the eventual surrender of the French and the transfer of New France to Britain. And Frank McGee returned to the Ottawa Senators after losing his eye in one game a few years previous. He would play for the Senators for the next three seasons, winning three Stanley Cups. In his first season back with the team, he had 14 goals in six games. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at 1903. Next week, we're looking at 1904. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes.